0: This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, we continue on Tap Nine Month with an overview of the on Tap Nine release: RAID tech, compaction, and flash. Oh my! Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi, Uncle Glenn Sizemore, and Sully the Monster. I love
1: NetApp. <laughs>
0: Hello and welcome to the Tech OnTap podcast. This is OnTap 9 month. Today we're going to talk about OnTap 9. I'm Justin Parisi. Sitting with me is Glenn Sizemore. How are you doing, Justin? Hi. How are you doing? I'm doing good, man. Excellent. It's been a long time since we spoke last. It has. It has. It has. But we've got an exciting show
2: today. Uh, we, we finally get to start to peel the covers off this, this, uh, this
0: new release that we just pushed out. Like Like the Shrek? Yeah. Life's an Onion. The Layers. It's a lot of information we got to get through relatively quickly. So let's move like, it on. Let's yeah. move on. Let's get a move on. All right. Also in the studio today, Andrew Sullivan.
3: You know, I need to do a recording of you and your, your theme music dance that you had going on here because Glenn and I were both cracking yeah. up. Hey, you know, that's, that's how I do it. That's how I roll. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. J- Justin dancing to the intro song is actually part of my favorite part of recording. You know,
3: I'd say we should periscope the podcast, but there's so much cursing and, and other stuff oh, that man. Justin edits out. Yeah,
0: so. yeah. That won't. You, that won't. Work. Everybody would have a much lower opinion of us if they heard what we actually sounded like off the air. Yeah, let's not do that. All Agreed. right. Um. So to talk about on tap nine today is is a general overview and some deeper technical discussion. We invited. Uh, Quinn Summers, who I would argue has the best radio voice of everyone here,
1: <laughs> very generous of
0: you. I, you know, every time I've heard every hear Quinn uh, speaking, yeah. I always imagine him as like this late night radio DJ playing slow jams. Are you trying to get? You trying to? He might take our job, man. Come
3: he on, might. What are
1: you doing? He took our job. He took our
3: jobs. <laughs> We're an NPR
0: host. So, so Quinn, tell us a little bit about what you do.
1: So uh, over the last fourteen years of uh, my my stint at NetApp, um, the uh, boy I've I've covered a lot of materials. um, But uh, currently, I'm a director of product management uh, with a focus on some of our virtualization solutions, our Flash software components of OnTap, um, our transition story, uh, some components of our our, um, non-disruptive operations in terms of like VolMove or our data movement engines like um, Single File Migrate on Demand, which is you know really instrumental in copy offloads uh, for. Uh, hypervisors, right? So sort of a
0: hodgepodge of everything. Uh, so I probably should have asked, what don't you do here?
2: Yeah, it sounds like that was an easier no. question.
0: <laughs> well, I don't clean toilets. All right, so Quinn, um, lots of good stuff in ONTAP 9. Uh, let's start off with one of the heavy hitters. Let's talk about this RAID tech. Uh, what sure. is RAID tech? How does it work? And why on earth do we need it? Okay,
1: Um. so... Um, More than a decade ago, uh, NetApp introduced um, the the world's first RAID 6 implementation, right? Um, uh, Taking an additional parity drive, making a scheme that was the the world's most lightweight implementation of RAID 6, or as what SNEA now defines as RAID 6. And uh, the RAID dual parity scheme uh, was able to take the advantages of RAID 4, in which you have a series of data drives and a single parity drive, and uh, using very, very efficient XOR calculations, either through subtraction, or another mechanism, depending on how many drives and what is missing within the RAID group to reconstruct data on the fly, but it also gave you the advantages of growing the RAID group on the fly in a non-disruptive manner, right? So if you remember RAID 4 or RAID DP, we're we're not uh, striping parity information across the entire uh, disk set, we have dedicated parity drives. And ONTAP's ability to aggregate writes uh, and dispatch them into the storage subsystem in a very contiguous fashion, allows us to minimize the amount of IO that we issue to those uh, parity drives itself, and this is a technology that that uh, NetApp pioneered. was the absolute first in the industry, and uh, RAID DP really enabled us at that time to take advantage of very large um, disk drives. And at that time, these were our introduction of our our, our um, you know SATA-based drives and the nearline storage. That was again the first in the industry. And if we look at what we're doing with RAID triple erasure encoding today, it's a continuation of what Peter Corbett, who was the inventor of RAID DP, um, I- invented. Uh, and so, in effect, we're adding a third parity drive, uh, rather than just two parity drives into our RAID set. Uh, And this um, uh, additional layer of of data protection will allow multiple simultaneous failures within the same RAID group um, while continuing to serve access. So specifically, we can sustain three simultaneous failures within the same RAID group and still serve data. The reason why this is so important is we're seeing astronomical advances in terms of uh, anomaly aerial density on the disk drive side coming in the form of Either single magnetic drives or heat-assisted magnetic recording—you know the, those uh, disk drives—we expect to support in the future. Um, but also, in just in the context of, of SSDs, where you know we're uh, now supporting, as a first in the industry, um, our, our 15.3 terabyte SSDs. Um, now, more so with an anticipation of the larger nearline drives that will come out, um, NetApp and ONTAP had to be adjusted to support these larger drives if we look at the purpose of, uh, of, of, of RAID, right, is to provide data access in the case of concurrent failures on the on the RAID set and uh, RAID reconstruction um, takes some time. And, and the time that RAID reconstruction, um, you know, takes to complete is, is really proportional to the size of the drives. And so if we're looking at maintaining our five nines and six nines availability across our systems, when we're starting to use, or when we anticipate using drives that are larger than eight terabytes in size, um, we wanted to make sure that uh, um, that we could still serve data and uh, you know withstand the chances of having a failure if RAID reconstruction is running for very very long times, right? With the 16 terabyte drives or or larger. Uh, again, this is sort of future proofing data on tap, if you will. So with the uh, on tap nine, any drive sizes larger than eight terabytes will require um, uh, RAID triple eraser encoding to be utilized. Um RAID triple erasure encoding has uh, a nominal impact on performance, just like RAID DP. It's not measurable. It's not something that we can actually um, you know, uh, see as a performance impact, which is one of the beauties of, uh, uh, of NetApp's implementation and how we created uh, you know, RAID DP to begin with. You can convert from existing RAID DP aggregates um, or RAID groups into RAID triple erasure encoding by adding a third parity drive non-disruptively. And likewise, you can downgrade, if you will, as well. Um, RAID triple erasure encoding is not required for um, uh, to utilize the sixteen terabyte SSDs. You are able to use the sixteen terabyte SSDs with RAID DP, um, but again, it will be required for disk drive uh, spinning disk drives larger than um, eight terabytes in the future. The other thing to keep in mind is that we always want to make sure that we're maintaining a parity to disk drive ratio, so we're returning the maximum usable capacity to our customers. And so, with the introduction uh, introduction of RAID triple erasure encoding. Or what we're just calling RAID Tech for short, um, our, our default parity group, uh, or sorry, default RAID group size, uh, has been drastically uh, expanded. Right, so you're no longer looking at 14 or 16 uh, default RAID group sizes. You'll see now a 28 disk uh, RAID group set to try to make sure that the ratio between user data and parity, uh, in terms of disk drive counts within the individual RAID set uh, or RAID group, um, are, are relatively constant. So, Quinn, just just to be clear,
3: right, there is, so RAID RAID DP uh, does not suffer from the same right penalty that a traditional RAID 5 or RAID 6 would, right? RAID 5 is a, a 4X penalty, RAID 6 is a 6X penalty. And RAID tech also does not suffer from that same set of, of right penalty or performance penalty that a normal, uh, even double parity, much less triple parity type protection scheme does.
1: That, that is absolutely correct. Um, so not only is it much more efficient from a dispatching I/O perspective, but it allows a greater amount of freedom of what to do with the, the RAID set as well. So, you know, we have a, a amazing amount of flexibility in terms of physical disk assignment and even logical disk assignment within HA pairs today. And what that means is that you can grow a RAID group, right, within RAID DP or RAID tech by adding in a spare. Now, the spare has to have zeros, so you don't recalculate, you know, parity uh, for the parity drives itself. But it really allows us to to um, you know begin with a small number of SSDs and continue to grow within the same uh, RAID group, if you will. Um, additional capacity should the customer need, and and that's fantastic. That's not something that you do with a different RAID five implementation, right? In which you can grow the RAID set on the fly. That's just impossible.
3: And so, does does it affect uh, RAID rebuild times at all? Because I know, or or my understanding is, you know, we're requiring this with the eight terabyte and larger spinning drives. Because, you know, the rebuild times are lengthy, and that leads to greater probability of encountering, you know, bit rot, silent bit errors on those spinning platters. So does it affect those rebuild times at all, or is it just just another set of
1: protection? No, another set of protection. Uh, And I think that's a really good point. So, yes, we have to uh, calculate uh, parity again for additional stripe across the RAID set. Um, But, uh, um, you know, the x calculations are very, very cheap and, and lightweight from a computational perspective. And we're already reading the data from all the other drives. So that component we're already paying for, if you will. We do have additional rights dispatched to the third parity drive, but fundamentally that doesn't increase uh, um, RAID reconstruction times.
0: Is this supporting ADP as well, or are we actually losing three disks at this point?
1: Um, on the ADP side of itself, um, the RAID tech, it will not necessarily be required to uh, support the 16 terabyte SSDs. And uh, the RAID triple erasure encoding, we don't think will be necessary for the the uh, eight terabyte HDDs, right? And so I think it's a future thing that we're looking at when we have larger HDDs themselves. Uh, RAID tech uh, and ADP with the future SSDs will absolutely support
0: But the good news is is that is the increased RAID group size. Even if we're you know losing an extra disk to parity, yeah, we're increasing that RAID group size, so we're not doing that chopped up like. You know, two disks plus 14, then two and 14. We're actually expanding it out. What's the max RAID group size? You said the default was 28. What's the max?
1: Uh, I believe the max is 28 right now. I don't think we've really fundamentally played with that just yet. So you mean um, we've but, actually
0: set the default as the max?
1: I believe so, yes. Oh, that's pretty awesome.
0: Well, that does make it easy. It does make it easy, <laughs> doesn't it? So a- anything else you got for us with RAID tech? I mean, is that you know, pretty much the, the overall um, technical overview, or is there,
1: you know, is there more? No, I, I you know. One thing I want to mention too is, you know, we've had to make a, a, some fundamental changes to underneath the covers within OnTap itself to support those larger sixteen terabyte drives, the sixteen terabyte SSDs. So, like in two thousand eight, we we introduced sixty four bit um, aggregates, right, uh, which mm-hmm. allows us to very very large waffle file systems within the cluster. Um, however, the what we track in terms of physical blocks of individual disk drives was limited, um, you know, up until we released OnTap nine. To a signed 32-bit integer, and so you know that that gave you um, before on tap nine the maximum drive size that we could support was eight terabytes. So while it wasn't as large as a project as our 64-bit aggregate program, w- for those who were really interested in the guts, we did extend the address range for our disk block numbers to use a 64-bit integer, um, and that will allow us to use you know a zettabyte type size SSDs or HDDs yeah. in the future. Yeah, I think it would take. to get there.
2: To- yeah, you just future-proofed the product for the next 10 years.
1: Yeah, that's very very
0: forward-thinking of us there. Yeah. Um, yep. The RayTech stuff, is that something that we came up with first, or is that something that we're just kind of – I mean, is that – so can we tout – the you know we talked about grade dp we're not
2: the first ones to talk about i mean uh, nimble has triple parity already out okay, there so like we're not, not the, we're mentioning. not the first ones yeah. to do
3: it zfs has had it for a while too What well, now,
2: now it's worth noting that that i'm pretty sure that that our patent predates everybody else so whatever like if we want to take leadership here we probably can but there are other people in the market <laughs> i don't know quinn quinn what's your answer to that i should probably let you sh- i should shut up and let you answer sorry buddy
1: um, no, I, I, you know it's a, it's a good question. I think we should take uh, pride in A, inventing, uh, or with you know Peter Corbett inventing Vernetta, Raid DP, and Raid Tech is that continuation of the same technology. Um, in, in reality, the, the Raid Tech implementation is a stopgap as we try to make our way towards distributed parity, right? very much like what we're doing with um, our E-series systems. Um, but the disk drive capacities have increased so fast that, uh, that we need them to ensure the availability and data integrity of the larger capacities. While we develop, uh, you know, alternative uh, RAID technologies or storage backend technologies.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm super bullish on RAID tech. I think RAID tech is 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 it's it's really important. Yeah, and, I and agree. It's, and yeah, it's really absolutely. really advanced and sophisticated. And, and the reason it's so important is because of these big drives. You know, we've been t- we've been talking about it on this show for a while now every you know th- this past year in the f- in in the all flash space has been very entertaining to watch um, because all the news and you know it, somewhere in the middle of the year we had the whole cross point thing and everyone's just completely lost and excited uh, for the future but with this this next wave of growth efficiency i think is going to become super 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 important and what raid tech does is it gives us a footprint to be able to use these these massive media targets without having to compromise on that efficiency.
0: That and it reduces your footprint considerably. I mean, you're not dealing with giant data center racks. You're dealing with much more condensed storage. Because again, there's only
2: two ways to do this, right? It's it's binary. Either you you give two systems the ability to read the same media target or you have to store two copies of the data. Yeah. That's it. One or the other. Right. So, so I, Raid Tech gives us a way to to, to extend the, the, the first of those.
1: I also just want to add one, one other thing that I think is just really cool about our, our Raid implementations and what we're doing on the storage backend is that uh, we have a lot of predictive um, heuristics uh, within ONTAP that looks at the health of individual drives. And if we start seeing indicators that a drive that might be failing, rather than waiting for the drive to completely fail, we will start copying the data from that individual disk drive onto a healthy spare well in advance of the entire drive failing completely, and we call this a rapid RAID reconstruction. Um, you know, internally we call the project name called Sick Disk Copy. Um, but uh, but what this means is, that, you know, at first I was uh, when I was evaluating our auto support data in terms of RAID reconstruction times for our larger drives, um, I thought we had a, like a, some terrible data collection error or analysis error because it was coming back with really really large um, nearline SAS drives reconstructing in a matter of minutes. I'm like, well, how is that physically possible? Well, it's physically possible because rapid raid reconstruction kicked off, copied the components of the disk drive that wow. was still healthy, readable, onto the new drive. And when the disk drive failed, triggering the rest of raid reconstruction, we only had to read a very, very small amount of data from an entire raid group right, to reconstruct the remaining data on that drive that failed. And so this is just like another uh, strategy that we try to minimize raid reconstruction times, even if we're using extraordinarily large drives. So it's cheating, but it's good cheating. Yes, <laughs> like, absolutely.
2: Like all things in tap. Like every, everywhere you look at the product you're, and you're just like, wow, that's wildly impressive. Somewhere under the covers, the answer is, well, we're cheating.
0: Well, yeah. And I mean, what's awesome about it is like you've taken decades yeah. of data that you've used to figure out, oh, this is when a drive fails. This is exactly what it looks like. Let's use that data.
1: Literally, like, right. multiple decades on handling the weirdest disk drive failures in the universe, and and we've learned from every one of those failures to add in you know additional resiliency and All so, All right,
0: curveball here. Um, what's the weirdest drive failure
1: you've ever seen? Ah, uh, boy. Um, one of the most exciting to talk about that that I don't know just tickles my brain is that there was a fire suppression system that that fired off on top of one of our customers uh, in our, their data centers. And the, the inert gas that came out with such amount of force caused uh, multiple head crashes across all of their gear underneath the vent of where that was. Um, and so, yes, while they saved, you know, their equipment from fire damage, more or less, and they had to have people with gas masks in, in that data center, right, because uh, it's not healthy to breathe, uh, you know, the, the next generation halon replacement uh, gas. Um that, that was one of the most traumatic you know, customer experiences that they've had is just uh, head, multiple head crashes across raid sets because of the uh, vibration caused by the, the excessive force of the fire suppression system going on.
0: I've actually seen a weirder one. The weirdest one I ever saw was in support, and there was this data center out in India. And the place they kept the data center was so toxic that it was actually corroding the drives and equipment. And we kept getting these RMAs. And we kept wondering why we kept getting RMAs from the same customer over and over and over again. So they root-caused it, and it was actually eating away at the actual components. It was so The air was so toxic that it was actually destroying these components. So um, that ended in, I think, a warranty voiding of some sort. But, yeah, that's the weirdest one I've seen. That's terrifying. That is. Imagine the, what's happening to the there poor are people, storage admin. Yeah, there are people working in that building. <laughs> I know. It's like... Wow, it's kind of like the Coca-Cola thing where you pour it on Chrome and it just gets well, it away. Well, it's you
2: know we're, we're 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 telling funny stories, but it. it it's worth mentioning, and it is worth you know, just, just bringing up because it's one of the things that I learned when I, when I came to NetApp. You know, I haven't been here 17 years. I've only been here five, so I'm still learning. Um, but but when, when I came here and, and you start having conversations with people and go, well, why do we do that in tap, you, know, you get the old gray beard who pulls up next to you and goes, well, let me tell you this story about 1998 when all of Seagate's firmware went wonky and we blew away X and all this other stuff. And, and there's history behind this stuff. And it's just decades upon decades of lessons
0: learned. Right. And you have to use that data to your advantage. Yeah. And that is what we're doing with RayTech. Now, Quinn, I'm going over the highlights here of the, the features I like the best. We'll, we'll, of course, let you talk about the ones you like the best. But let's go with compaction next. Tell sure. us about compaction.
1: All right. So so inline data compaction is uh, um, uh, you know, NetApp's next uh, introduction into storage efficiency, inline storage efficiency. Um, some of you may know that Waffle has a fixed 4K block size. We keep track of data on disk um, and also within in-memory, within like 4K segments or, or chunks, if you will. Um, we aggregate them into larger allocation areas. We don't write individual 4K IOs out to drives. Uh, you know, we, we really do batch them up together and coalesce them and write in a much more efficient manner. But fundamentally, it's a, you know, we have a fixed 4K block size. Um, this means with technologies like inline compression or inline deduplication, the, the most granular you know amount of space savings that we could get was 4K, right? Uh, so if you're writing, if your file is, say, like uh, 4K in a byte, you know, uh, like 4,097 uh, uh, bytes, then we would have to write that out to two physical blocks on, on disk, on the disk backend. Um, and and so that can limit uh, deduplication or uh, compression space savings. We use a compression group size of uh, 32K for, you know, um, our, our compression, background compression that was used in... Uh, prior to data on tap 8.3. Um, post data on tap 8.3 for inline adaptive compression, we use a 8K uh, compression group size, which means you know, we try to compress the data and we store it within basically two blocks. Data compaction allows us to have really the benefits of uh, extent based file system, really uh, taking away some of the negatives of having a fixed 4K block system by, by looking, if we can compress data and, uh, and write it out into a smaller fragment of a 4K chunk, why can't we take multiple of those fragments and store them within a single 4K block. And that's exactly what inline data compaction does in an extraordinarily efficient manner. So it really doesn't change how our inodes and our file system structure works. It's really, we're just packing in more data in a single 4K chunk that's addressable uh, by, by Waffle itself. And the results of this are, are phenomenal, right? We uh, Within synthetic benchmark tests, within early validation program customer testing with real data sets, we've seen space savings you know, um, that that there is a lot of variance depending on the data set and that's to be expected wherever you're utilizing compression uh, and deduplication. But I think on average across all of those, we see like an eight to one space savings, right? And then on the extreme, on an extreme component on some of the synthetic benchmarks and some of the customer data sets that we had some early testing with as well, you know, we're seeing like 67 to one, which we, you know, I want to tamper expectations. I don't think that will be typical of what we see in the future. but the more, more of the story is that we can really take advantage of our extraordinarily efficient compression algorithms. We're currently using a proprietary compression algorithm that's faster than what uh, uh, our competitors use on the open market, uh, faster computationally, right, to compress the same amount of data than say like using LZH uh, or LZ4. Um, and uh, the benefits of uh, data, inline data compaction is that we're uh, taking, we, we can really, really take the additional space savings from compression and almost forget about our block size, right? So not only we're compressing at an eight k CG group now, but within uh, on tap nine, we're we're also trying to compress multiple four k blocks again and see if we can take those fragments and put them into a single four k block. The, the beauty of this approach is not only you know on typically what we were seeing with early validation testing is doubling the amount of compression space savings our customers can get. Um, but also it's it's extraordinarily lightweight to do this. Uh, the way that Data on Tap and Waffle currently works allows us to do these manipulations in memory before we write them out to drives, uh, our disk subsystem. And and we're seeing like a 1% to 2% performance overhead when inline data compaction is turned on. And that's phenomenal. And this is integrated with all of our features, right? It's protocol agnostic. You can use it with fiber channel. You can use it with NFS or SIFS. Um, it's integrated within our data protection schemes, right? It's enabled by default within our all-flash bas for all new volumes created, so you don't have to worry about... Uh, you know, is it applicable to a workload? Or is it not? And it has such a low performance overhead associated with it, we just turn it on for every single workload. Like, you really don't have to worry about
2: it. Hey, Quinn, I'm curious. Where in the process is compaction? Do, do we, and granted, this is just like super weedy, nerdy stuff, but I'm curious. Do do, do we run the compaction before we go through and do the dedupe and compression pa- phases?
1: No, it's actually the opposite. So what happens is uh, we, we do um, deduplication first, and we search for uh Um, also uh, blocks of zeros, that happens at the same time. After that we do inline compression, and then after both of those things have run, after we've run dedupe, after we've run compression, then we run inline data compaction. So it happens.
3: So you you mentioned that there's a super low overhead from a performance perspective uh, when we're writing out to disk. I know, so for example, deduplication uh, essentially is uh, all the different layers of caching and everything else inside inside of ONTAP are aware of deduplication. Is this the same with compaction?
1: By and large, yes.
3: So essentially, that means so much like deduplication, right? I'm only pulling right that block once, right into cache, and which is really cool when we're talking about things like VDI. But you know, because it's also stored in cache, that means that I'm further getting you know even more yeah. extra cache, right? Yeah. I'm using air quotes here, right? Because we're we're basically storing more stuff in the same amount of space in the cache layers.
1: Yes, and and so um, you know usually with with the space savings technology you get into this read modify write cycle that causes more disk I/O on the back end, um, but during our testing and the validation of the technology we actually conversely see like a like a decrease in the amount of writes that we're issuing on the back end, and that's exactly for the purpose that you're talking about. If the memory, uh, if not only do we get to leverage our system memory to a greater extent because we're representing physical, uh, we're representing logical data requiring less physical space. Um, but also, we're cutting down on the amount of disk IO on the back end, which really enables us to use TLC based technology, which is foundational to the 16 terabyte SSDs. Um, so, yes, it's it's extraordinarily efficient. Should there be contention in the system, should for some reason, you know, we've hit CPU saturation, we're having bandwidth issues, either issuing IO to drives, there's something that, that we see, you know, is, is saturating from a resource perspective, then we will back off data compaction. Uh, because our primary goal within the all flash based systems is really to, uh, you know, deliver sub-microsecond response times, right, for for uh, reads and writes. And so we, we really take a balanced approach. Should there be, even if it's only 1% to 2% overhead, should that be enough where we think we would uh, have drastic increases within latencies for processing I.O., compaction will back off, uh, just like inline deduplication.
3: And to be, to be clear, that 1%, that 2%, 3% overhead, is that CPU overhead? Is that latency overhead? Is that additional memory consumption?
1: CPU. And uh, um, there will be multiple TRs, uh, technical reports, across different workloads, whether it's a VDI or LTP-like workloads, um, where we'll see, you know, we're really proud to, to announce uh, sub-millisecond response times for hundreds of thousands of IOs. And that's with data compaction. And that's with a mixture of reads and writes as well. And so um, it is as about as a lightweight, innovative storage efficiency technology as we could possibly imagine.
0: I'm hearing really good things about Oracle on this. I mean, I'm seeing, you know, some numbers on the internal side that I'm like, oh, that's going to be nice in a technical report. That's going to be a real good story to tell. All right. So speaking of databases, um, sometimes when we are setting up a cluster, it's hard to know what the best practices are um, the best way to set up your cluster. And even when we know the best ways, it's a little hard to get that down patch where it's an automation process. With that said, we've added some things in ONTAP 9 that might help with that. What sort of things did we add, Quinn?
1: Absolutely. Um, specifically in the context of uh, all-flash um customers have the ability to order our products um, in a NAS-optimized or a SAN-optimized configuration. And that does a number of things. Uh, one, It gives a pre-configured cluster uh, shipped from NetApp manufacturing. This means uh, that a default storage virtual machine is created. Logical disk assignment is uh, uh, assigned across the two controllers within the HA pair. Um, The RAID layout in terms of the drives per RAID group and what that looks like uh, is really optimized to provide the, the, the maximum throughput to the system and is set to according to our best practices. And then depending on whether you're setting NAS or SAN, um, it also uh, creates the appropriate logical interfaces on the, on the cluster as well. It uh, pre-assigns some IP addresses to our cluster management list uh, and also creates uh, roles, administrative roles within the cluster, right? A cluster admin role and uh, assigns it a password as well. And the objective of this is to allow the installation of the cluster uh, to, to proceed as fast as possible according to NetApp's best practices. Um, this is available in the all-flash AllFlashFaz system. When you order it in this area or in this fashion and it's deployed, then um, the default SVM name triggers System Manager to provide different workflows. And on the application side of things, as you were mentioning before, we support multiple, multiple different applications. So these are templates within System Manager that the cluster admin or the the vServer admin uh, can choose that will provision storage according to NetApps and the application's best practices, right? And it will ask, uh, like in the context of VMware, uh, how many data stores are you going to create? You know, uh, what the size of them would you like to be? And the wizard would go off and create the necessary volumes, create the necessary exports, and get that uh, volumes ready to be consumed by the ESX uh, host. And so these uh, wizards are really meant to, A, deploy um, provision storage for applications according to best practices without requiring customers to know what those best practices are, which I think is excellent. The second component. I
0: was going to say, I, I think cooler than the templates is the fact that we're factory installing this stuff. Like before it was just ship it out and make them set it up on their own, but now we have an option to kind of pre-select, right?
1: Yes. And and all the pre-selections, all the sort of pre-configurations are um, you know, is highly recommended to use like 95% of those in a production environment. So it's not just for like demo deployments. This is really the optimal way to set up our clusters. Of course you're gonna have to change your username and passwords. You're gonna have to change your IP addresses if they don't conform to your network. But beyond those minimal changes, the cluster is ready to go, right? Um, the uh, the other thing that I want to highlight too, and this is uh, more enhancements within ONTAP9, is that um, we're also including a local software repository. So within the default SVM, you'll find a flexible volume junction into the root of the, uh, the SVM, uh, or off of the root of the SVM that says NetApp Software. And when you're uh, selecting, uh, um, you know, the VMware solution radio button within the core tool, either from a partner or from our, our uh, you know, a sales rep or sales support rep, this will preload that, that volume with all of the NetApp software necessary to deploy a complete VMware NetApp solution. So this is our virtual storage console binaries and installations. These are uh, on-command unified manager. This is our VASA provider if you'd like to use uh, VVols and the VMware NetApp solution. Um, uh, really sort of like a complete set of all the different disparate software components that customers could use or or it's optional for them to use to complete a a NetApp VMware solution. And it really um, obviates the need for them to go to the support site to download the individual installation packages. Everything that within the NetApp software directory um, is guaranteed to work, A, with the other binaries and installation packages there, so you don't need to check the interoperability matrix tool to see if it works. And we're shipping the appropriate versions um, that were, are also guaranteed to work with that version of clustered ONTAP. So really trying to simplify acquiring the necessary ecosystem software um, and making that very specific to the version of ONTAP that is shipping with the pre-configured cluster from NetApp Manufacturing.
0: While those things may all seem very simple and very rudimentary and on the surface, but underneath, I think it's really cool because, you know, a few things. One customers save time. They don't have to go download things. Two, they don't have to go look at a matrix that may be confusing to them and figure out where everything is and what versions they need. And three, it saves support calls because when I worked in support, a lot of the calls would get would be what version should I be using? What's on the matrix? Um, where can I find this stuff? So that's going to save time on both sides, both NetApp and
3: customer sides. Yeah. I, I So I've had a bit of a a, a thing against the simplicity term that we've been using inside of Ontap or inside of NetApp for a while, right? Because really, I didn't get that from you. Ever. yeah, I know, right? because it's it's really about usability, right? And this is one of those things that it is furthering usability, right? It's making it easier for customers, for yeah. the the end user of our system to use the system, right. They can get up and running that much faster. They don't have to go through all the the nerd knobs, right, so to speak. They don't have to go through all the settings. It's just consuming it, not having to go through all those processes. Another part of that is some of the storage admins that we get,
0: they get the storage system to set up. Guess what? They don't have a Now account. They weren't the ones that signed up for for the stuff. So they don't have a Now account. They got to call in to get a Now account. They can log in. Now what do I download? It's all there for them, ready to go. Yes. And uh,
1: we, we hope to expand that to other solutions beyond uh, VMware, but VMware is the very first one that we're uh, providing that in addition to uh, the application templates for VMware, whether it's a VDI instance or uh, you know, a virtual server instance. Uh, of course, application templates have a wider coverage than just VMware. right? We have SQL Server, we have Oracle right, as a, examples within there as well.
0: We talked about compaction. We talked about the simplicity or usability, if, if Andrew is looking at me like he wants to beat me. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about Raytech. Um, I know there's a lot more than that in ONTAP 9. So why don't you just give us a list?
1: Sure. Okay. The, yeah. So in addition to the things that we've already talked about, uh, we have advanced drive partitioning schemes that return, you know, additional 17% of capacity to uh, all flash FAS systems using one to two shelves of SSDs. Uh, and that's really by creating multiple partitions on the SSDs themselves, where an individual SSD can be uh, owned logically, uh, by, you know, both controllers within the HA pair, which is pretty fantastic. Um, and, of course, reserving a slice on there for the operating system data as well. Um, and that's that's really different than the previous version of ADP, where we were just doing two partitions rather than three partitions. We've made phenomenal enhancements to our flux clone speeds for individual LUNs and files. And so it's an order of magnitude faster, um, you know, provisioning clones than we were before, which is a phenomenal benefit to... Um, you know, our, our VDI environments and uh, test dev uh, with uh, with file clones or, or lung clones. We've um, drastically increased uh, inline deduplication as well. So not only are we looking for redundant blocks within memory, right? Uh, which is what we introduced within dead on tap 8.3. But now we're actually starting to look for a redundant blocks only within memory, but on disk as well. So we have a hash that's stored within memory that hash extends to some of the blocks, not all on disk. And so uh, we're starting to see inline deduplication benefits that exceed the use cases that uh, you know were were really applicable before, which is really sort of like patch cases for BDI, right? And now we're getting to a point where inline deduplication space savings are are returning additional space savings compared to Dead on Tap 8.3. So that's enhancement that we continue that that is on, brand new within on Tap 9, um, and uh, really gives further space savings than what we had within that on Tap 8.3.2. We have SVMDR enhancements, right? Uh, The ability to select volumes that you want to mirror, the ability to set network configuration information uh, that that you want to not carry over in case your disaster recovery location has a different network topology and a different network, uh, basically different IP subnets. Um, We have, oh, I'm sorry, a header performance calculation, right? Um, So within system manager, now we're telling, uh, with visualizations, what are the busiest aggregates? What are the busiest lifts? Uh, Are they running out of bandwidth? And more importantly, on a node basis uh, and an aggregate basis, uh, how much more workload could you put on there and still maintain a very low latency? And uh, over time, we'll incorporate that. And uh, only uh, you will know, we have headroom calculations being shown within on-command performance manager, but we really hope to integrate that the, the set of heuristics that provide customers, if I'm going to provision a new workload with a new latency target and a throughput, where on the cluster should I do that? And so uh, we have a lot of IP and patents filed around what that heuristics look like in live time on where to determine performance going into the system itself. Um, I think we'll have enhancements or we do have enhancements in the system manager in terms of visualization of what's going on in the system. And from a CLI side, you also provide, uh, you know, top files and top clients. So uh, you'll be able to see which IP addresses um, uh, are consuming the most amount of resources within the cluster and which files uh, within the SVM are actually responsible for issuing or, or serving, if you will, the most amount of IO. So really giving a little bit more troubleshooting um, uh, capabilities immediately uh, to the storage admin if they're trying to track down, you know, uh, who's misbehaving or who isn't, to take advantage of our uh, quality of service controls to either tamp it down dynamically. Um, QoS enhancements we already have as well in ONTAP9. Uh, I think we went, we, we more than doubled the amount of uh, uh, QoS policies. Up to 12,000 per cluster. So you can really do individual app granular management from a QS perspective within cluster data on tap. Those are all things that, that are, are really, really exciting um, uh, to me. You're missing the most important one
0: Curb 5P for NFS. <laughs> oh.
1: <laughs> the one
0: yeah.
2: NFS feature you would just, just decide that that's the I winner. Just,
0: you know, hey, it's the best. We <laughs> should have a disclaimer on your statements. What? At least five customers have asked for this, <laughs> at least.
1: Yeah, the, the local groups. So, so on the protocol side, you're absolutely right. We do have a bunch of security enhancements for the customers who, who want to avail themselves of that, right? And,
0: uh, also, the onbox key manager, you left that out.
1: That is true. So uh, customers wanting to take advantage of NetApp storage encryption uh, but don't want to use an off-box key management uh, solution uh, can now um, store their keys locally, right, on the cluster itself. Um, it's passphrase protected. You actually never see what the private key is, um, but uh, but that really allows solutions to protect data at rest um, and and um, you know really reduce the complexity and in some cases the cost of an of a of a off box key management system utilizing uh, NetApp storage I- encryption, whether it's on the SSC side of things or whether it's on the HDB side of things.
0: We also have a knob for FIPS. FIPS compliance, we can turn it on or off, which means you have. when you turn it on, you have things disabled that are not FIPS compliant.
2: Ooh. That would be, as someone who
0: once upon a time had to live with FIPS compliance, that's a handy feature. It is. Like, you can't use SSL3 or something yeah. if you have FIPS compliance on. So
1: Yeah, I should note that the, uh, the, the onboard key management uh, system for NetApp storage encryption, though, is not FIPS compliant by itself. Uh, you know, upgrades, non-disruptive upgrades from a scale-up perspective for a four-node metric cluster into an eight-node metric cluster, um, you know, heterogeneous uh, uh, deployments for there. We allow SnapBalt and uh, SnapMirror now to, to coexist as a single copy. And that relationship, all new SnapMirror relationships are, you know, by default uh, using our new SnapMirror engine, which is version independent. And, and that's really fantastic for extremely large uh, um, customers multiple data centers, multiple organically grown SnapMirror relationships. And uh, the performance of our new uh, unified SnapMirror engine is, is pretty fantastic. You know, there used to be a time where, uh, for those of you who've been around for a really, really long time, you'd, the best performance comparisons, you'd have this choice, right? You'd have Qtree SnapMirror you know, as, a, as a granular replication engine operating on a logical level. But it wasn't really uh, appropriate to use if you had hundreds of millions of files, right? You know, sort of looking at what the rate of changes or, or which files have changed took a long yeah. time. Volume SnapMirror was your sort of performance, you know, aspect. So if you had hundreds of millions of files, you would go always go with volume-based SnapMirror. Well, in in OnTap nine, there there's uh, our unified engine gives you the best of both worlds, right? Um, it uh, allows you to have a different snapshot schedule between the source and the destination. Um, so you can have retention times that are much longer within snap Vault, you know on the destination than the the primary. And the performance of uh, of the our unified snap mirror engine is very, very good. So you no longer have to say, do I have you know hundreds of millions of files? Maybe I should use the block-based replication engine or or the other one. And uh, uh, as part of you know simplifying our our usage of our systems, that unified replication engine is the default snap mirror relationship for all new volumes created. All new SAMU relationships created, so you don't have to try to figure out what is appropriate for which application. This is going to do it for you, right?
0: So what I'm hearing is there's a lot of new features. Um, so many that we decided to go from 8.x to 9. That is correct. Yes. Because that's that's a lot of features. I mean, you're not even listing them all. There's a lot of NAS features that are added, there's enhancements everywhere.
3: Apparently we need to talk about Kerberos 5. Well, again. let me tell you about <laughs> Kerberos 5P. <laughs> I heard we're bringing back workgroup authentication with SIFS. Yes, exactly. Workgroup authentication—that's
0: actually a big one. You'd be it, surprised. It actually is, yes, so. I mean going back to Glenn's NT four example that he told at one point—that <laughs> you know people want to use their local SIFS. They don't want to have a domain. Well, partic- I mean, Listen, d- d- we've got the, the
2: the the share on the box with our own software in it. Th- that's the at least in my experience that's the number one use case you just random you know you're in the data center and all of a sudden you're like man we need a file share or man we need an nfs mount it's the only way we can connect these two systems yeah. and i don't want to mess with a lun and then next thing you know you're you're down this 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 path of well we need an authentication mechanism oh crap i don't have a domain in this this environment how are we going to do that so having the ability to just kick it on real quick create a user account connect get work done and then turn it back off that's
1: awesome
0: yeah, a lot of yep. good stuff out there. It'll be in the release uh, notes. Um Quinn, you had something else?
1: Yeah, so so like um, um, we also allow uh, volume rehost capabilities to yes. you know, logical reassignment of a volume from one NSVM to the next. Quinn so, I have, and this, I
2: I am super bullish on that. I have a question for you though, sir. Does that work with sure. the
0: flex clone?
1: Yes, it does. Absolutely. Ah! Uh, so that's one of the kind of- <laughs> I'm I'm <laughs> that so happy.
0: Yeah, this is what people, uh, people have been asking for this for a long time, the ability to rehost a volume from one well, SVM to another.
2: Yeah, and that's huge, Justin, because the, like we've talked about it a hundred times here, and, and again, here I go kicking the dead horse again. But like when, if you want to find a customer that, that is getting the absolute most out of their, their storage, what we find is a customer that, that has integrated enterprise storage management features into their CI/CD process. Right, specifically like capabilities like snapshots and clones, uh, the, the, especially clones. Being able to take uh, full 100% copies of the data and then represent that for development and or test use cases is just so powerful. It's, it's not even funny. But the things that we've had to do architecturally to make that happen because of the, the inability to just take a volume that's attached to SVM1 and say, hey, you're on SVM2 now, present that data out, uh, it, it's made it kind of complicated. We've, it's been a lot of automating SnapMirror the past year and a half. So with Rehost, all of those processes just get so much simpler.
0: And what's funny about Rehost is the actual underlying mechanisms that you need to do that are really not that hard. Yeah. I mean, you could do it manually if you knew which knobs to turn, but basically it's just changing the underlying UUIDs of the specific tables you need to change to reassign a volume from one SVM to another. And what they've done is they've created a command that does this all for you so you don't screw anything up. It's it's all we needed them to do though. It's all we needed. Yeah. But hey, we got it now on Tap9. Simply anywhere on Tap9. Yeah, simply anywhere. Simply anywhere. It's simply anywhere on Tap9. It is. And actually what the you know we joke, but the anywhere piece is referring to the ability to do it yep. on prem or in the cloud, or with ONTAP Select, which Quinn actually did not mention, but we'll actually have a show later in the month on that. Speaking of shows, the rest of the month will be dedicated to ONTAP 9 features. Coming up next week, we'll be doing data protection. We'll also be doing ONTAP Select. We'll be doing OnCommand System Manager and OPM. Um, We'll be doing Flex Groups. We'll be doing Performance with Flash. A lot of good stuff coming up this week. Make sure you check it out. So, Quinn Summers, where can we get in contact with you? Do you have a Twitter or any sort of social media presence or just hit you by email?
1: Email is actually the best way to get a hold of me. It's just Quinn at NetApp.com. And, uh, you know, I welcome all questions.
0: All right. Excellent. Thanks a lot again, Quinn, for coming in and talking to us about all the goodness thats on Tap is ONTAP9.
1: You're welcome. Uh, Thank you very much for having me.
0: And now for some breaking news. On top of what we just talked about, so tap 9 is really yeah. awesome and exciting. As, also, if,
2: as if on tap 9 wasn't enough for us to worry about this right, week. Right,
0: right. We're also going to tell you about an exciting new thing coming from SolidFire. So they've been kind of hinting at this thing for a while. It's a June 2nd announcement at an Analyst Day. Basically, what SolidFire is doing is changing the way we sell storage as a whole and yeah. the storage industry as a whole. Um, we actually got a chance to talk to Val Bercovici, who is the CTO of SolidFire out at the NetApp uh, A-Team ETL. We did a show on that a few weeks ago. Uh, We were able to talk to him about this announcement ahead of time. So we've been been sitting on this for a few weeks now. We can't tell anyone because it's, you know, embargoed. However, you can listen to the interview now and hear all about it here. All right, Tech on Tap podcast crew here. Me and Andrew Sullivan are sitting here with the one, the only, CloudZar still? No, not CloudZar. We talked about that already. Val Bercovici, the SolidFire CTO, uh, Val, there's something going on soon? What's going on? I, I've heard about the next thing and that'll change storage. Change the entire storage industry yeah. is all we
4: promise to do. Is that all? That's all we
0: That's promise. That's a small promise.
4: Nothing less, nothing more.
0: So, I've been seeing a lot about this on social media and in other channels and I'm really intrigued about... How are you going to change the storage storage industry? An industry that really has been disrupted beyond belief at this point. What are you going to do to further disrupt it?
4: Great questions. So let me tell you. This is all obviously based on a June 2nd announcement. It will be history now by the time everyone hears this. And on June 2nd, we're announcing a couple things at the SolidFire Analyst Day, which we're going to live stream the keynote of. What we're announcing is that you're going to be able to not just see new node types, so new products if you are from SolidFire, and not just further milestones in terms of integration with a NetApp data fabric, but we're looking at the entire ownership experience for storage from end to end. So as you said, yeah, there's been lots of disruption on the flash side. There's been lots of disruption on the cloud side. You could argue there's been lots of disruption in terms of, you know, developers now dictating the terms for storage and DevOps teams more so than the declining, uh, you know, role of storage admin over time. But the ownership experience really hasn't changed that much. You've still got these environments where, particularly if you're capexing storage, you've got to work with your preferred vendor through an RFP or not to kind of qualify and size, the kind of system you want. You've got to work through the hardware and software and support costs for that, at least, if not more line items. You've obviously got to go through the, um, the installation and then the maintenance and capacity planning phase. And then the most dreaded thing, I think, the reason why people effing hate storage is often that renewal time three years down the road where you've got to re-up on hardware, sometimes forklift upgrades. You've got to re-up on software support and, and um, software, I should say, entitlement and on support. And that's just a painful exercise for people that have to deal with that storage infrastructure layer. So what we're announcing is an extension of a very cool program that SolidFire has had for a while now called Flash Forward, which is the ability to reduce, I think, the concern around sizing, deploying, and then renewing systems. We've actually announced a very exciting enhancement called Flash Forward Capacity Planning and Flash Forward Capacity Licensing specifically. And that's where we're giving customers a perpetual license now for SolidFire technology on a simply fixed increment capacity basis which means that once you've purchased that software entitlement for solid fire it doesn't matter how often you renew hardware or what type of hardware you renew into a bigger or a smaller node in your cluster over time it doesn't really matter you know whether you're consuming more or less capacity because we're doing it on effective capacity so if your global efficiency rates your dedupe and compression rates are better than expected you actually get a very very good deal but on a solid-fire side, we at least get something predictable that we can license. Um, and you can obviously expand that in fixed increments over time. So it takes away that really, really painful discussion. I've heard some sales reps at various companies, including ours, say that they know it's such a difficult discussion that they love to slip their, their renewal quotes under a door and run away You know, with, at their customer site sometimes. So it gets rid of all that. Um, and we're obviously going to detail exactly at, at what level it does. But... Uh, we're also being super transparent with our hardware costs. You know, a lot of people have a lot of conspiracy theories around you know, what the actual markup is on storage hardware, and increasingly over time as software defined has evolved from a buzzword to a reality in terms of how storage is configured. Those of you that have studied SolidFire's technology know it's a very software defined architecture uh, that really de-emphasizes specific hardware uh, d- dependencies altogether. We're being very transparent in that. We're basically saying the hardware you get from us is Cogs plus ten percent with the flash forward capacity licensing, and you have the option of licensing Element X. And if you want to license Element X, you've got to source your own hardware. You've got to make sure that the chipsets are exactly at the right, the right chipsets at the right firmware revisions. You've got to, of course, be able to stock your own spares throughout the organization, and you've got to keep that, you know, up to date on an ongoing basis as you continue to consume our technology and if you want to take that burden on and you think you can do that at better than cogs plus ten percent that's entirely up to you we will you know enthusiastically sell you Elementx in that scenario but in the vast majority of our customer discussions you know after they realize what's involved in maintaining their own hardware and seeing the uh, the absolute transparency of, of the cogs plus ten percent they realize it's a bargain to let us source the controllers let us qualify the chipsets. let let us validate that the firmware versions are correct on the motherboard as well as the various SSD and flash media let us you know globally stock the parts let us burn in the equipment let us manage the delivery you know to your data centers and so forth there's a lot of value in that ten percent and it kind of takes that contentious and time-wasting discussion just off the table and you can focus on what is the value and where are the pain points? You know, If you don't want to ever have to renew software entitlement, well, with this program, you never have to anymore. It's an optional program. And yes, we are starting off with 100 terabyte effective incremental licenses. But if you're a small to medium customer, you don't become a solid-fire customer to buy one system. You become a solid-fire customer because you either already have multiple tenants that you have to support or you plan over the short to medium term to add more and more tenants with zero additional management overhead. Or performance tuning overhead, and in that case, these 100 terabyte effective chunks make a lot of sense based on the analytics we've done with our existing and projected install base.
3: So, just to be clear, um, how do you how does this compare to, for example, consumption based uh, pricing or or consumption? It sounds like a
0: cloud based pricing almost, like AWS pricing, where I you know I only pay for what I use in the cloud, but I'm doing it on prem instead. Is that is that something that's kind of akin to that or yeah what dave wright did
4: ceo of solidfire is he challenged his product team to say make our ownership experience as seamless as the core technology actually is and one of the things i always reinforce to new people of solidfire whether they're just prospective customers or or uh, or people that don't use solidfire haven't touched it is that it really is aws like storage an aws like storage experience in a box Uh, it, it, it isn't you know i like to catch people's attention by saying it's not a flash array and it really isn't. It's a storage services system solution. Cloud in a box. Cloud in a box, exactly. And, and for a cloud in a box, you have to have a lot of automation built in towards the sizing of the system, the setup of the system, the ongoing maintenance of the system, and the capacity planning of the system. And all of those functions are built in and automatic you know, on solid fire clusters. And it's truly elastic. Cloud in a box doesn't just mean scale up, and it doesn't just mean scale up non-disruptively. It means scale down non-disruptively as well and turn off if you don't need it all those things are actually built into the technology from day one but the licensing models have been more conventional enterprise licensing models where you have to re-up your hardware every three years typically you have to re-up your software entitlements and the support separately we basically said now is support is still something you'll have to continue to pay on a subscription basis but the hardware you have complete control over sourcing your own if, if it's supported by by the element OS software letting us do it at COGS plus 10%. Uh, And for the software entitlement, it's very, very simple. It's an enterprise license, so you can use that 100 terabytes that you're entitled to at a chunk at a time, anywhere throughout your enterprise. And once you've purchased that 100 terabytes, you never have to repurchase it again, which is a revolution in terms of the ownership
0: experience for storage today. One hidden nugget in there that may have gotten glossed over is you are basically allowing the freedom to do it yourself which also illustrates the value of why you would not want to do it yourself right so i mean there's a lot of talk of hci and you know oh, i have the opportunity to manage it myself now and i can have control over it but there's a cost to everything you do and that's one thing that people don't think about until they have to be faced with it and what you're doing is you're essentially saying if you want to do it fine go for it we're not going to stop you but here's why you don't want to and if you didn't do it it isn't that much more to do it this way that's exactly it. It also
4: liberates you from your capacity planning now because SolidFire as a model has always had a, a simple, single capacity pool to size and use and, and, and plan around, but also a separate, single performance pool. And now we've taken that to the, the next level by saying you've got a set of software entitlements you manage, which are super simple, they're just these 100 terabyte effective chunks, and you've got a hardware pool that you manage separately. And that can be your hardware pool, if it's supported. That can be, you know, our capacity licensing-based software pool. Or that can be the traditional solid-fire nodes. And you can intermix those in your clusters, by the way. But you've got complete control now over how you want to manage your storage infrastructure. And you no longer have to have this awkward symbiotic relationship between software entitlement and specific, you know, controllers and specific shelves and so forth. All that complexity
0: is done away with. And it kills the whole, like, argument of lock-in. I mean, so... The lock-in argument has always been, I'm stuck with a storage vendor or I'm stuck with a software vendor, but you're, you're using the same software vendor, but now you can pay for what you're using, so that lock-in doesn't hurt as much. And if you don't want to pay for that, you just move it somewhere else, and now your capacity is at a different level, and you're paying for that instead. That's exactly it. So let me give you the, the, the
4: most famous use case that a lot of our sales teams like to use because it's real is sort of the FedEx cluster reallocation, where you have 10 nodes in one system, one data center, let's say in the West Coast, and you're building out a brand new data center in the East Coast, and you're looking at your capacity utilization, and whether it's capacity or performance, which is super easy to figure out, you're underutilized on that West Coast data center. So all you have to do is you have to just, you know, literally non-disruptively live in production, take out about four or five of those nodes. You want four minimum for full data protection, FedEx them over across the country to the new data center, stand those up, and you you basically non-disruptively now reallocated all those hardware resources. In a traditional sense, you basically would have to have that software entitlement to that license for the new nodes, and you'd have to set, you know, negotiate the support separately. If you've got the you know, flash-forward capacity licensing model deployed now, and you've already purchased that effective capacity and a software license for that effective capacity, you have to do nothing. In, in that reallocation because it's not tied to hardware. It's not tied to nodes or disks or shelves. Yeah,
3: I think that's an, in, an important thing to point out, right, specifically, is that if you are licensing in, in a, that 100 terabyte increment, right, it doesn't matter if I have one 20-node cluster that's 100 terabytes or, you know, four-node four, four node clusters that's 100 terabytes or less, right, it is the exact same price from a licensing standpoint. It's the hardware that you are choosing or, well, potentially choosing <laughs> to pay more for depending on which one of those yeah. you go with. So yeah, it's a super interesting uh, model for how storage is licensed, right? Um, so, so a bit of an opinion question. Do mm-hmm. you think that this will shift uh, storage, the, the cost of storage away from a CapEx model and more towards an OpEx model? Or is that something that's still a little bit premature?
4: You know, I think uh, I'm a big fan of pendulum swings and moderation, so to speak. So I, I think it'll start, it'll, it'll definitely shift the discussion. It'll kind of lay down a challenge to every other vendor to try and match the solution. And there's a lot of artificial ways through leasing programs, through you know financing programs that we've seen in the past, but it'll challenge vendors, you know, solutions to see if the technology at its core operates in that agile and infrastructure manner for storage. And clearly it's going to challenge the licensing models of existing storage vendors. But I predict, you know, overwhelming endorsement from customers because it really is customer inspired. They were asking us to make their ownership experience simpler. I believe all the savvy analysts, you know, will figure out that, yeah, this is what customers want. So it's the next evolution of software-defined storage is an actual software-based licensing model for production, you know, high-performance storage, particularly in a multi-tenant context. Uh, it's, and I'm really looking forward to what the actual, to your point, Andrew, business users. When a business, you know, consumes 100 terabytes of storage, they don't think of it at any lower level than that. And sometimes there's awkward conversations between storage teams and line of businesses, you know, asking, you know, why do we need more funding just to, you know, redeploy more storage or upgrade more storage, you know, reallocate resources. And it's all tied to legacy business models, which isn't the case anymore as of June 2nd.
0: It reminds me a little bit of the, uh, the software model with the per core licensing, per seat licensing. You know, you're only paying for what you're using, whether it's Exchange or whether it's SQL or, you know, whatever application you're doing it. So it's actually an application-inspired licensing model, it sounds like, and, and that's where everything's going, right, with DevOps movement and you know, OpenStack and everything else in the industry that's disrupting it. So we've talked about changing the storage industry, and Andrew touched on it a little bit, you know, if it's driving that pricing model from from CapEx to OpEx, or is it the other way around? No, yeah, from CapEx to OpEx. Yeah. So, is that is that the impetus for saying that you're changing the storage industry? Is that where that inspiration for that?
4: Yeah, I think, company? you know, we're all saying the same thing. We can call it the shift from CapEx to OpEx. We can call it the major influence of cloud and, and cloud-like consumption models. It's fundamentally addressing that. It's just customers, and particularly service providers, cannot afford to be in business by pre-buying a lot of infrastructure that's the most rapidly declining asset in the business ahead of time. And then, you know, figuring it out after, you know, make it up and make a lot of stuff in volume, right? So uh, that just is good business, fundamentally isn't good business. So this is a fantastic, you know, licensing model, ownership model for true service providers that have to operate at a profit as a business. But most digital enterprises, digitally transforming enterprises, most very evolved IT teams that have gotten way beyond virtualization and, and are in the maturing automation, offering true services and service consumption to their internal users, clearly they need the same thing. And they, they don't have the luxuries in this day and age of over allocating and, you know, budgeting more than they need. They'd love to be able to just CapEx even what they're using and then CapEx some more later on, but you know, not necessarily have these giant chunks of spend
3: over time because no one has those budgets anymore. It's funny you say that because I've been advocating for years of you're paying for a hundred percent of that gear. If you're only using ten percent, mm-hmm. it's suddenly a really expensive ten percent. So you want to drive that utilization up, and it's a perfect example of not everybody can legitimately do that, right? Yeah. So it's it's uh, definitely a a cost-effective way of changing that license. And isn't it
4: ironic, you know, not to be another Alanis Morissette song here, but by the time you actually get close to that maximum utilization, so you think from an investment perspective, wow, got my ROI, I'm really proud. That's panic stations, right? Because now your, your infrastructure from either a capacity or performance perspective is tapped out. Yeah. And you, you, you sometimes have to operate under crisis conditions, mm-hmm. which is not exactly leveraged with a vendor. To, to basically expand that storage infrastructure. And you can, you can avoid crises with this model. Yeah. You know, with the technology
0: in this model now, you can literally run a, a, a much less stressful business. And, and I was going to touch on that, actually, because as a, you know, a former admin and, you know, sysadmin, storage admin, whatever.
3: Help desk guy.
0: Help desk guy, et cetera, et cetera, whatever I'm doing now. Something, something. I love like
4: Bantus title, right? Storage janitor. We should all Storage janitor, then, right? So, I mean,
0: you, you allocate storage, and you say Exchange is a good example. I'll use that one again. So, you know, of course, we're all moving to Office 365 model, but mailbox sizes. Trying to put a quota on a mailbox size and telling people you can only have two gigs of mail, people freak out, right? So then it becomes this battle between, you know, management and the storage admin or the, you know, the Exchange admin. I can't do quotas, so I have to just give you as much as you want. If I'm doing that, again, to the leverage of the storage vendor, I'm going to have to keep buying storage because I, I am using it now. You know, it's, it's going to get used. And that's, you're seeing that across the board in, in pretty much any capacity-driven standpoint. You know, just, it's just how it works. And that's human nature. So you know, more, you know, if I've got it, I'm going to use it.
4: So, yeah, the, I mean, the bigger picture, the refreshing sort of discovery for me working with Dave Wright and his team is just how customer-centric they are and just how directly they respond to these customer needs. They, you know, theres there's no dancing around difficult topics. It's either you know a yes or a no in most of the conversations and, and you know typically a justified yes or no either way. But where there's power to actually dramatically change that customer experience as we're doing with flash forward capacity licensing, we're just going ahead and doing it. And we're doing it recognizing that you know, there's different booking systems for NetApp and, and for the solid far side of the business still today. We're do, recognizing that there's different revenue recognition and all sorts of ramifications. Uh, and so there's all sorts of mature organizational antibodies and barriers towards doing something like this. But we're still just, you know, one of the reasons why George Curry and Dave Hitz are such enthusiastic supporters of the acquisition is because it is letting us learn from the solid fire side. You know, what is a very modern, agile, customer centric business in the storage and data management industry and applying that, not standing in the way applying that. And over time, I already think we're seeing the beginning of influence on the, ONTAP, on the ONTAP 9 announcements in terms of the simplification of the portfolio, the simplification of AFF consumption models and so forth. And we're going to continue to see that best of both worlds where there's a lot of maturity that we've gone through as an engineering organization on the ONTAP side that the SolidFire guys are looking forward to learning about. And there's just a lot of, of refreshing you know, modern customer experiences on the SolidFire side that... You know, the ONTAP, Storage Grid, and Altavolt, and so forth sales teams are learning about.
3: So that's a really interesting topic, Val, because you're, you're one of the few people uh, here at, at the, the new NetApp, so mm-hmm. to speak, right? The, the portfolio-wide who's seen both sides. Um, what what are your, you know, sort of perceptions? What are the things that you're seeing are being adopted from SolidFire into ONTAP, into the rest of the portfolio, and the inverse?
4: I think, uh, you know liaison or ambassador between the, you know, sort of the, the different departments in the company is definitely part of the job, title, part of the role. Uh, so the early examples I'm seeing are things that my team is primarily responsible for now, which is how do we scale an NDA process, right? So on the solid fire side, it's been very informal. It's been kind of naturally restricted by the product managers to make sure they don't have the Osborne effect going on and so forth. And, you know, there's a lot of things that the NDA process at NetApp, you know, maturing over the years have, have taught me in terms of how to scale that in a, in a measured and, and responsible but also productive way. So I'm able to apply what I've learned from the NetApp side of the house and scale out an NDA process to more of the solid fire field. And ultimately, the, what we're doing in our very first joint NDA call coming up in June as well, actually, is, is the same thing. It's now going to be an integrated, unified NDA processes. So that's just one example, you know, from NetApp to SolidFire. I think uh, things like the ONTAP 9 headroom feature are just a, a tangible example of taking some of that utter simplicity of, of ownership and capacity planning on a SolidFire side and transferring it, which is a non-trivial process, obviously, to a, a much more feature-rich ONTAP environment, yet still being able to yield useful capacity planning information for a lot more storage services enabled on an on ONTAP side. So there's that's just the beginning sort of just you know the the tip of the iceberg in terms of what's possible on both sides. There's still a lot of familiarization and education on both sides acquired as to what each really does. And you know, we ran hard in Q4 and we got past that and now we're actually standing back a little bit and looking at what needs to be done to have you know a better planned FY17 and it's it's just fun topics all over the all over the map and I mean, it's a privilege to be in the middle of, of a lot of them and that's what I'm looking forward to doing is tearing down a lot of walls and barriers between both sides and, and letting people see just how cool the other really is.
0: Yeah, absolutely, I mean there's a there's a perception that you know everybody has of the other and that needs to be torn down and, and the reality needs to set in because there is value in both sides mm-hmm. and you just need to address that and approach it from the right angle and you're gonna make a more powerful overall organization on the whole. So. All right Val, so you made the bold claim of Change in the storage industry. And I think you backed it up pretty well. But let's say somebody doesn't agree. How would they get in touch with you to challenge your assertion or to tell you what a great job that you're doing
4: overall? The most fun way, clearly, is to let, let's engage in a Twitter conversation to the extent we can do that 140 characters at a time. But rumor has it that they're going to remove the links for, for uh, external articles and images on the 140-character limits, and maybe we have a few more characters nice. to articulate ourselves. Yeah, that would be nice. So Val Valb Val B 00 on Twitter is a fun way to have a public discussion. Uh, on DM, of course, on Twitter uh, is another way to do it. And if you're listening to this podcast, you should know what my email address is, and that's valb.netapp.com.
0: Excellent. All right, so if you want to get in touch with Val, please do so. Also, you know, let us know if you have any questions at podcast.netapp.com. At Pretty good stuff there definitely changing the way people are going to be thinking about how they sell storage in the future. I think, I think it's actually going to probably change how a lot of vendors are going to, need to approach the whole storage industry.
2: I hope so. Yeah. I, I personally, uh, I, I hope that that's the way that it goes. Um, I'm, I'm personally just kind of sitting back to see what the, the response of, of our customers are. You know, is this, is this how they want to do it? If so, great. Yeah. It, it makes it
0: easier for us. And potentially it, it it delivers on the marketing promise of changing the storage industry. I mean, you know, they said it, and it sounded like a big lofty expectation, but it might deliver. It could. Absolutely. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at podcast.netapp.com or send us a tweet at NetApp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher or via tappodcast.com if you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech On Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank Quinn Summers for joining us. And Val. And Val Bercovici. As always, thanks for listening. Oh, yeah. So, uh, On Tap 9 thing, I think it's going to be a big deal.
2: Might be. Yeah, could be. Could be. Could be. Could be. It's, 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 it's There's pretty, a lot it's of stuff
0: cool. in there. There's some really cool stuff.
2: It's it's. Is it just I'll me, tell you what. For us, We're, it's a good yeah. thing oh, they yeah. didn't decide to rename it Data. It would have really messed up the podcast.
0: It would have totally would have messed it up.